This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. It's about the fascination with Columbine and the sort of specter of a school shooter and also this young woman, Lindsay, who became obsessed with Columbine and then planned a mass shooting of her own. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Rachel Monroe is a journalist and author who spends a lot of time thinking about true crime and women. She has a book called Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. It's an interesting read because she examines true crime through four narratives, each looking at a different role women play. So in the chapter titled Detective, Rachel recalls the story of the woman who created dollhouse crime scenes. There are stories titled Defender and Victim, but we're looking at the story titled Killer. In the annals of history, women have gathered in courtrooms and viewed men who are on trial for murder with a certain level of fascination, which you would not think in in Victorian England or Victorian America would be the case. But where do we start with this kind of story? Can we look back that far with Lindsay's take on Columbine and see just a thread running through history of this? The two things that I think about with Lindsay are both, on the one hand, how is she and, and these other women and girls who profess affection or love for convicted murderers, murderers on trial. In what way are they just like the rest of us, reflecting societal fascination that we have for these people and the way that they're put on a pedestal and and given this kind of dark celebrity? And in what sense is this a specifically gendered thing? and, And how is it different for a girl like Lindsay? I'll definitely be interested in hearing from you why she ended up where she ended up. So let's start from the beginning. Tell me a little bit about where she grew up and all that. I think this story could have gone in a lot of different directions. Lindsay spent most of her childhood in the suburbs of Chicago. Her father was from Laos, upper middle class family. They had a horse. They took cultural enrichment trips around the world. Okay, so so far this seems like a nice, well-adjusted family I wonder if Lindsay felt supported growing up and if she was really close with them. One of the things that's tricky with Lindsay is that sometimes she has one take on her family and her growing up experience and and her family sometimes says something different. So according to her mother, she experienced a lot of bullying and particularly for being biracial. According to her, that didn't happen. She didn't have any problems at all. Around puberty, she starts both spending a lot of time online and then becoming really fascinated with these sort of darker subcultures online, the world of deviant art and creepypasta. I don't know if your listeners will be familiar. If you were like a little bit of a kid with kind of goth, kind of nerdy tendencies, and these were websites where you could go and write stories or share fan art. She's a really talented artist. And so these are, are the kind of internet worlds that she's into. She's she's into Harry Potter, fantastic escapist 
internet worlds. I talked to some people who knew her in high school around in her teenage years. And it did seem like she she presented to the world as a very shy person, pretty awkward. And then if you read her online, I don't know, she kind of blossoms on the computer a little bit. She's a good writer. She's funny. She's strange. These characteristics that maybe were tricky at a suburban high school were really celebrated online. So you start to see her spending more and more of her time online. Is this pre-MySpace or Facebook? Post-MySpace, early, I guess, time for social media, the glory days of these kind of message boards, which seems to be where she spent more of her time, which were like a little bit more anonymous. She created a million different personas. So you start to see her maybe having some confusion with reality. Like what? She has a really strong imagination and she created in some of these stories sort of like an imaginary boyfriend character who was death, a grim reaper kind of figure who she would draw. But then she would sometimes also start to tell her friends, he's my boyfriend and refer to him as if he was real. You start to see her maybe not always be entirely in touch with reality and escaping into this sort of fantasy world where she has love and she has affection and she has somebody who's, you know, completely devoted to her. So she is kind of going into a fantasy world, but it seems like she might not really be able to distinguish sometimes between reality and fiction. And it's so hard, right? When there are kids with really active imaginations, I mean, it's sort of a delightful thing too. I talked to um, one of her creative writing teachers. She always got a lot of praise for her imagination and that was like a real strength of hers. And so, you know, at what point does that become pathological? She does start to ring some alarm bells because she becomes in high school through the internet, sort of increasingly drawn into these internet worlds of these far right communities at the same time. And I think that is people treating what happened on the internet as as kind of a joke or not real or not serious. I think people weren't quite sure what to do about this. Her teachers, her classmates, she's this very shy, very quiet biracial girl who's suddenly involving Nazi themes in her creative writing stories. Wow. Like sympathetic Nazi scenes? In this section that I wrote, I I kind of parallel her a little bit with Ayn Rand. It's less about the ideology for her and more about the appeal of these powerful, cruel figures who don't care what anybody else thinks about them and who are sort of above other people, which was very much not not her real experience in the lived world, but you could sort of imagine how it would be in a in a fantasy world sort of appealing. And so her teachers, you know, really have a, have a hard time dealing with this. Sometimes she gets called into the principal's office. Sometimes she gets reprimanded. So they try to steer her away from it, praise her for writing other things. Her classmates sort of don't quite know what to do with her. She she definitely loses some friends, but other people sort of seem to take it as a she's acting out. She's trying to be edgy. I mean, this is another thing we see certainly a lot with teenagers and a lot online is this desire to kind of provoke a response or be shocking or flout these taboos. And so people were sort of treating it like that, kind of rolling their eyes a little bit. Her parents had no clue. Well, obviously they, they were getting called in probably or their teachers. She said later that her parents sometimes would be like, you're depressed, you're anxious, would kind of come up with these 
these diagnoses, would, would try to send her to therapists, would, you know, pursue various treatment things, which she was really, at least as she said at the time, like very offended by, basically. She didn't want to be labeled. She didn't want to be labeled. Increasingly in her fantasy world, right, she's the superior being. So why would anybody say that there's anything wrong with her? Is she getting attention from young men online, do we think? She definitely has a very sexy and provocative online, at least that's part of one of her personas, is dressing up using these kind of filters on her face to make her eyes look really huge, dressing in sexy outfits. I don't know if this begins in high school or if it begins a little bit later, but that ends up being a big part of her persona. She has an internet boyfriend, and that seems where like a lot of this Nazi stuff comes to being. It's hard to know, did the internet Nazi boyfriend come first, or did she become an internet Nazi and then get a Nazi boyfriend? But he's sort of a disturbing figure who was the founder of this very alarming internet forum called Iron March, which has been linked to a number of murders, white nationalist groups. This is the world that she's in, and this is her internet love. And so this is all happening online, but while she's still, you know, going to high school and, and leading a relatively normal high school girl life. And then she goes to college, kind of more of the same. Where did she go to school? She went to Coe College, which is a small liberal arts school in Iowa. She's nearby, not too far from, from her family, stays in the Midwest has a really hard time making friends, has a roommate freshman year, and then that roommate, you know, moves out after a semester. This girl's too weird. She's just a very isolated person, except for online, where she seems to have a number of people who she's close to and feels connected to. At some point, this internet Nazi boyfriend breaks up with her, she flips out, and she ends up getting kicked off of that forum because she won't stop spamming it and trolling it. And so she's too much of a troll for the Nazi forum, which is... Wow. She sounds like she's really going downhill the older that she gets, the more kind of aggressive online she's getting. Yeah, she's getting aggressive online. Her connections with the outside world are diminishing. She ends up developing quite a bit of anger that she directs toward happy couples. She feels romantically rejected. She feels like a great amount of despair about it. It's interesting if you read some of what she writes, there's a lot of resonance with the incel community. Most of them are boys, right? This involuntary celibate community that happens online that has also been linked to a number of mass shootings or attempted mass shootings. Tell me about this. You don't want to start Googling it because you get really depressed. So it's I-N-C-E-L and it's short for involuntary celibate. The most notorious incel and somebody who gets invoked a lot in this community, and this is a community on Reddit and elsewhere online where it's mostly young men who identify as involuntary celibate. Why don't girls like me? Fostering in each other a lot of rage, usually against women and against other men for having this sex and love that they don't have. Elliot Roger, who's this rich young man who drove through Santa Barbara and shot at and killed a number of, I think he was attempting to target a sorority and had this manifesto online about how angry he was that he wasn't given the attention and love that he felt he deserved. And so he was going to go murder a bunch of women. There was a shooting at a yoga studio, I believe in Toronto. I mean, there just are a number of these sexually frustrated young men who, who go online and egg each other on. What is supposed to be the point? What is the end result of these groups? Are they encouraging them to do what? Nothing? Or I think it's sort of the dark side of social media. The benefit of social media is you sort of feel like, hey, I'm not alone. I feel such despair and rage in my social role that I have or my inability to connect with people. And so I go online and I realize other people feel the same thing, which could be a good thing. But in these communities, they just mutually reinforce 
it's really dark and it's it's very depressing to read. I think they might have been kicked off of Reddit at this point. So it's a lot of people kind of validating each other's really negative beliefs about the world or about women. So she's not on these forums as far as I know. She reminds me a lot of these groups in this feeling of romantic frustration that is directed as rage. It's a sort of despair at an inability to connect. Is she visiting her family? Does she have a connection with her family at this point once she's kind of in college and a young adult? The point at which I start to follow her story the most closely is after she's graduated. And at that point, she's living back home. So once she's done with school, that's sort of the the place that she retreats to. At some point for one of her creative writing classes, she starts writing a novel, which involves a subplot about a school shooting. And so she goes online to start researching school shootings. Runs across Columbine, of course. Yes, finds this whole world. And I should say she has a lot of trouble connecting to people, a lot of challenges, a lot of repugnant interests, but she's also really interested in fashion. She's interested in fantasy novels and fantasy worlds. Like You could imagine her being drawn into a different kind of world. Things were sort of slightly different if she was sort of able to get out of this kind of hole that she was in. Maybe things could have gone differently, but she has a Tumblr blog. Up until this point, it's mostly like fashion images, runway, high fashion, loves wearing high heels. And she starts finding this community that's, that's devoted to Columbine on Tumblr, the Columbiners. I first wrote about them almost 10 years ago and kind of how I found Lindsay's case in the first place because I was interested in this. It's a very strange community. When I first found it, it was mostly teenage girls. Tumblr is a great place for you sort of make a shrine to your crush. Mm. I mean, you could do other things on Tumblr, but it's mostly if you're reblogging pictures. You imagine the door of my room and all the walls of my room when I was a teenager just covered in photos of this embarrassing rock star that I had to crush on. So Tumblr is sort of like the digital version of this, right? Where you just have pictures, 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 pictures. And the Columbiners are applying this sort of crush aesthetic to the Columbine shooters. And the whole thing was aired live on TV. There had been like a handful of school shootings before that, but this one, much higher body count. Those other school shootings were over very quickly, you know, in a matter of of seconds. This one, the actual shooting probably took place over 20 or 30 minutes, but we didn't know that it had ended when it did. So, you know, there were SWAT teams converging on the buildings. You have basically for three or four hours this live feed of the school under siege. So it just becomes this huge media spectacle. Because it was a wealthy suburb, even though it was 1999, you had some students with cell phones. So you had students hiding in, calling TV stations, calling news stations from inside the school. And so that's something that we see a lot now with these mass shootings, reports kind of from inside. But this was, I think, one of the first times, if not the first time that that had happened. I remember it being startling to me because, number one, it was really well organized, right? This wasn't just somebody pulling out a gun and sort of feeling like a spur of the moment. This was really well planned out. And they had a manifesto, I think. And I see why people were sort of drawn into the glamour of that. Definitely. And I think also we as the media... This was a new phenomenon for us. And so I think we've learned a lot of lessons and we cover these shootings in a different way now, where often shooters' names aren't mentioned or are mentioned way down sort of at the end of a piece that's not highlighted. But at the time was before we'd learned those lessons. So there really was a lot of speculation afterwards. You know, who were these boys? Why did they do it? What were they Mm -hmm. wearing? What were they listening to? And that's so understandable. Everybody's looking for how did this happen? Why did this happen? 
And I think that that was partially a creation of the media sort of obsessing about them and, and focusing on them because we did, they, they became these kind of icons of, of rejection of the bullied student, of the outcast. The parents of the students sued the sheriff to get a bunch of files released. And in that, you have both of the boys' diaries became part of the public record. And so it's not surprising at all that you have a lot of teenagers online who are finding these first-person documents really fascinating and will go through and, and read the diaries and look at the photos. The boys both very early in internet culture, they had websites, they filmed themselves. There was both a lot of media attention from the traditional media sources, and then they themselves had created a lot of media. So there was just a lot of content there, honestly, for young people. For 99, too. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's one reason it's such a resonant event and it had such a long aftermath. And it's interesting to think in 2012, 2013, 2014, some of these kids who are going online and, and posting about Columbine weren't alive when it happened. That's something that I found a lot in the, the sort of Columbine or subculture. For them, it almost seemed unreal, right? It was like a movie or... It's a fantasy. How did Lindsay present herself in these Columbine forums? How did she enter in and what was she like online for them? A lot of her posts have been deleted since. Even though there was an active court case? Uh, yeah, I don't know if she deleted them or if she had an auto-delete. Um, or it might have been just the entire Tumblr got deleted or taken offline. So you can see some of her posts, but I can't see the whole interplay of it. Within this Columbine Tumblr subculture, it splinters into different subcultures too, right? So some people are researchers and you can see these 14-year-old budding forensic psychologists and they want to understand the, the psychology of it. Some of them sort of celebrate what happened in a way that's really creepy. And, and Lindsay was more on that end of the spectrum, fetishizing what happened, fetishizing guns, fetishizing violence, making really dark jokes about what happened on the more extreme side of that. And through her posts, she ends up becoming friends with another young person in the subculture who's a, a young man named James Gamble, who also has sort of a Columbine Tumblr and, and is posting a lot of the more violent, angry memes. And Lindsay, she has graduated college. She's not really sure what she's going to do with her life. She's applying to the Peace Corps, but she doesn't really want to go. Living in her parents' house, being pretty antisocial, doesn't have a job. James, somewhat in a similar position, he's younger. She's, I think, 22 at this point, and I think he's 19. I think that he's living with his parents. He's unemployed. He lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He has a best friend named Randy, Goes to local metal shows and stuff. He's he's not a total shut-in, but he also has difficulty socializing and spends a lot of time online and finds friends within these kind of communities of outsiders online. They connect. And is this a love interest spark? Yeah. And it's interesting because their entire relationship, as far as we know, it took place entirely on Facebook chat. They never talked on the phone. They never FaceTimed. They never Skyped. And as a journalist, I'll say it's pretty wild. You can read the entirety and all of this was entered into evidence. A thousand plus pages of the chats between them. And you can see the entire course of their relationship, which is pretty fascinating material. Much of it is pretty disturbing material, too. It gets romantic pretty quickly. They start chatting around just a couple days before Christmas and... 
both are grumbling about their parents, grumbling about the holiday, and are spending a lot of time talking to each other very quickly, you know, hours a day. Pretty soon, they're talking about Columbine. He's like, I wish I could do something like that someday. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're talking with Rachel Monroe about the story of 23-year-old Lindsay and her cyber crush, James. James has just told Lindsay that he'd like to do a mass shooting of his own. But is he serious? And would Lindsay actually go along with it? They start sort of talking about what if we did? What if we could? Again, it's this interesting line of are they trying to show off for each other? Are they creating this mutual fantasy? How much of this is fan fiction? How much of it is an actual plan? It does, over the days and weeks to come, start to take on more reality as, okay, this is something that we're planning to do. Where would we do it? What weapons would we use? Those logistics start creeping into it more, even as at the same time, kind of parallel to this plotting a mass shooting conversation, they do seem to be doing their own version of falling in love, talking about their struggles with mental health, talking about their struggles with their families, talking about feeling misunderstood, talking about their lives. Reading these chats is a very strange experience because there is this tenderness between them. They both say that they're virgins. And so I think this connection comes to be really meaningful for them. But then at the same time, page or two later in the chat, they're fantasizing about hurting strangers. Why do you think they never even spoke on the phone, let alone met? I mean, does anybody bring it up in their chats? Do they say, hey? They plan to meet. These were two people who were much more comfortable online, who felt like themselves, who felt much more fluid and confident. I mean, it's so interesting with Lindsay. Her persona online is this badass, sexy, scary, intimidating, confident woman. And then when you talk to anybody who knew her in real life, she was so quiet. She didn't say anything. She faded into the background. So it'd be the end of a fantasy, essentially. They were interacting in this mode that was very comfortable for them. So they start seriously putting together a plan. Where are we at this point? 2014 is when they are, they first meet December 2014, right before Christmas. And then from reading the chats, it does seem like James is the one who's a little bit more pushing this to become a reality. He says that he's already asked his friend Randy. Randy's like, I can't do it, man. We could go to the mall, we could go to the library. And Lindsay does not talk him out of it, but Lindsay is much more focused on what will I wear? Should I wear this jacket or what color lipstick? Very obsessed with the aesthetics of it. She lives in Illinois. It's not that easy to get a gun in Illinois, but it's much easier to get a gun in the United States than it is in Canada, where he lives. If maximizing body count was the most important thing to them, they would have planned it differently. But they're also young and doesn't seem like they're seeking outside counsel at this point. Are they trying to get advice from anybody on any of these forums? No, no, no. They're, well, but it's interesting because they're not cautious about what they post online. 
do you really think this is real? Are you really planning this? Lindsay has never shot a gun. She doesn't go to a firing range. I'm pretty sure that she's never touched a gun in her whole life. She doesn't know how to use a gun. You know, the Columbine shooters, they went to firing ranges. They did a lot of training. These kids are the most they can do is watch a YouTube video. James has his father's hunting rifle and a shotgun single action shotgun. So it would have to be reloaded after every time. He's got, I think, 13 bullets with bird shot. And he sort of found these in his parents' house. But it's not a great cache of ammunition. And neither of them has any experience with firearms at all. But he keeps sort of pushing it. She keeps saying, yeah, I'll be there. Does he come up with a concrete plan? Is he saying, meet me X and we'll do Y? They decide that they want to do this at the mall on Valentine's Day. She doesn't buy a plane ticket. How committed is she to the reality of it? In Canada? To fly from Illinois to Halifax. Yeah. Wow. Okay. When she doesn't buy the plane ticket, when it doesn't happen, James gets really upset and chatting for hours every day. She has kind of spun out into this fantasy world. She thinks that she's the reincarnation of Eric Harris, who's one of the Columbine killers that, mm-hmm. I mean, she's deep in her fantasy world right now, very much losing touch with reality. Eventually, she scrapes together the money. She buys the plane ticket. She heads to Canada. We're going to do this this weekend. The plan is that James will shoot his parents while Randy, the friend, picks up Lindsay from the airport. James and Lindsay will spend the night together. They will lose their virginity to each other. The next afternoon, they'll go to the mall on Valentine's Day and kill as many people as they can. They spend just as much time talking about, can we upload pictures to Tumblr? Will everybody on Tumblr see us? Can we do one last post before we die? How can we let them know that it was us? How can we film it? They're thinking about this is like a content opportunity almost more than anything else to become famous like Dylan and Eric, the, the Columbine killers. But the plan almost immediately falls apart. What happens? She shows up in Halifax. Somebody tips off the police. They're definitely talking to some of their friends about what they're planning. They're posting these ominous, very lightly veiled things to Tumblr. February 14th, look out. Somebody calls in a tip to the Halifax Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers come to James's house. Both of his parents are out of the house at that time. They ask him to come out and he shoots himself. Whoa. Meanwhile, Lindsay is at the airport. She's landed. She gets flagged by customs because she seems strange and is immediately taken into custody. So they never meet. Well, go back. So they arrest her. Do we know what the reaction is from anybody around, from her parents or or anything? Is this shock or not shock? I think it's incredibly shocking for everybody. From her parents, which is mostly she has an active imagination. She writes, you know, she has this one persona online and in her writing, but she never would have done anything. This is not the Lindsay that we know. You know, I spoke to people who knew her who were both shocked, I think, and not shocked. Not surprised. Well, it didn't sound like she hid her anger at all. Right. And so people had known her as this troubled person. I wonder if they thought it would be more like self-harm rather than plotting to hurt other people. Right. And on Tumblr, both she and James had sort of had these fantasies of we're going to become celebrities. Everybody is going to want to know everything about us. They're going to post pictures of us and talk about how wonderful we are, but that doesn't happen at all. A lot of people who are sort of in the Columbine world who maybe knew them tangentially, 
delete their blogs. Those who say anything are disgusted with this idea that this would spill over into real violence. The celebrity and the fame and the adulation that they had sort of fantasized about getting is just really doesn't show up for them. What is her reaction to being arrested and, and everything? How does the rest of her life so far unfold? So this happened in 2015. For a long time, she's in a lot of shock and sort of feels like, well, I didn't do anything, right? Like how how much trouble can I be in? I didn't do anything. You can be in a lot of trouble. One of the lessons here is I've heard from somebody who's in touch with her. She was incredibly heartbroken about James's death. You know, they had never met. They had sort of created this connection online that she had printed out pictures of him and, and had those in her cell in some way. Wow. Heartbroken. And I think it took a little while for the reality of her situation to settle in that she was charged with conspiracy to commit murder. And it was a really interesting case in Canada because Canada doesn't have as much of a robust history of uh, mass shootings. There's less mass shooting case law. So what do you do with somebody in a situation like this? The, the prosecutor is sort of arguing this is like terrorism, 25 years plus. The defense was saying, no, 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 this was a thought crime. This is somebody who planned for this event in only the most frivolous way, thinking about her outfit, not really doing any actual weapons training. But flying to Halifax. It's intent. Exactly. She's taking those steps. I went to Halifax for her sentencing and she's this incredibly small person. She's in the room. She's tiny. She looks very, very petite. Not really much of a space for her to speak in this court proceeding, but doesn't have a very big or intimidating presence. But at the same time, I was reading these chat logs where she's saying these incredibly disturbing things. I really, I had no idea which way it was going to go, but um, she ended up being sentenced to life in prison. Wow. With... Possibility of parole after 10 years. I was pretty shocked. I, I think that one of the things that's disturbing for me, I guess, is the person that I know who's been in touch with her was just saying how in prison, it hasn't been terrible for her because she just lives so much in her mind. And so it's just, she's just retreating even more into this internal fantasy private space, which seems like exactly what, it's not good for her, right? Like that seems really, really damaging and alarming. And she's writing a lot and she is, I talked to her creative writing teacher and, and she had reached out to him. She's, you know, working on novels and, and was wondering if she could get them published. She's on a podcast, I think, right? She's been on podcasts. Hearing those podcasts, what's your sense from her? I think at this point she is still as far as I can tell, really committed to her ideology, still seems to be very divorced from what actually happened and still seems to sort of be holding on to this idea of herself as this powerful, confident being, almost clinging to it in a way, which is really maybe psychologically necessary for her. But at the same time, the only way that she's going to have any rehabilitation, which is the only way she's ever going to get out, is if she looks at the situation honestly and she'll have to be vulnerable in some way, but it seems like she's doubling down on, on not being like that. How does this story, which is titled The Killer in your book, how does this fit? How does this piece fit into the puzzle that you're trying to lay out here about women and true crime as an audience, as victims, as killers, as defenders? Where does Lindsay's story fit in? In some ways for me, Lindsay is a cautionary tale. I wanted to make sure in the book to not pathologize this fascination with true crime. There are ways that people channel this fascination in very pro-social ways. But at the same time, I wanted to 
make sure to not shy away from the more upsetting and troubling things that can happen when as a society or we as individuals fixate on, obsess about these crimes and particularly fixate on, obsess on the murderer, the serial killer, the criminal figure and make them, even if they're the anti-hero, make them a central figure, give them that celebrity, give them that central place in the story. That's not at all just something that the Columbiners are doing. In some ways, I think what the Columbiners are doing is sort of showing the rest of us what so much of our culture is doing. And that's why there's so much horror at, at what they're doing. If you turn on a lot of these true crime programs, they're doing something not that dissimilar in wanting to know everything about the killer, his mind, right. his childhood, like a celebrity in a way. What I have always struggled with is almost everything I do is men killing women. And my challenge in all of my books and in the podcasts have been to show the victims to be as strong characters as the killer. Otherwise, they're just props. And that's how a lot of times female victims are presented as just sort of bodies. Right. It's always been a struggle for me, but I worked really hard to try to do that. And, you know, that involves getting to know the victims. That's something that I struggle with a lot too, personally, is I understand and I really appreciate the focus on the shift that's happening where people are really trying to focus more on the victims and tell their stories and give them sort of a more of a complete humanity. But at the same time, I think that can turn into almost like celebrity victims or Sharon Tate, their death, their murder becoming the central fact of their life, the reason we want to know about them. And it almost I become really troubled by that, too. Maybe that's why I like to do the, the pivot to context or, you know, something bigger is these stories are so rarely just about two people, right? The murderer and the victim. They're not compartmentalized. It shines a light on parts of society that are dark oftentimes or on a time period. True crime to me is very much like sports. Mm. You could do a sports story. There's a beginning, a middle, an end. Someone changes mm. from the beginning to the end if there's a conviction. It is a excellent way to structure a narrative using sports or using true crime. But with true crime, my goodness, what you say, what you write, what we put in this podcast affects people. Yes, very much so. And the other thing that I wanted to get into in that killer section is not just sort of thinking about how we as the media contributed to the Columbine killers taking on this outsized role. Also how a story like Columbine affects how policing in schools happen. Sometimes true crime is treated as if frivolous or trashy. True crime doesn't always have the best reputation when it comes to respecting the victims, when it comes to exploiting the victims and really putting an emphasis on glamorizing the killers. That's a problem. No, these stories, the ones that... They kind of hook into our imagination, become political footballs in a way, and have a real impact on policies and change the way that we negotiate our reality and who we think is scary and the laws about who gets locked up for what, for how long. So we have to really take them seriously. And if we're just sort of narrowing in and looking, zooming in way too close on the killer and the victim, then there's a lot that we're missing. And what I think is interesting is that oftentimes we are looking towards somebody like Lindsay who may not be taken seriously as a killer. We're thinking, oh, it's more James, which sounds like could be the case here. But I've talked to a lot of psychologists who say we don't take female killers in this mm. country seriously. Women are just as capable of killing as men are. So I think it's interesting to see kind of the inside of, of somebody. Who, it just seems like a, a deteriorating mind. 
Yes. But someone with so much creativity, you said at the beginning, she could have gone multiple different ways if one little thing had changed. Yeah, I think that's really, really true. And that's why this story sort of makes me so sad is that kind of obsessive brain of hers, what it fixated on turned out to be really harmful for her, really harmful. It could have been really harmful for a lot of other people. Talking to people in Halifax, even though this mass shooting didn't happen, a lot of people there are still haunted by it. There doesn't have to be a murderer necessarily for their acts to have caused harm. Did this affect you? I can't imagine that it wouldn't. Having to read all of this crap that you had to dig through, not just her chats, but just all of the forums. How did this affect you? There's something about reading the chats that the intimacy, I guess, with these minds, they didn't sort of feel like they were being observed. So it it seemed like getting them in, in a pretty raw state, over a thousand pages of this back and forth, the hateful ideology. And I think my default stance towards other people is curiosity and warmth. Positivity, it sounds like, right? Positivity, yeah. I just That's how I move through the world. Yeah, you're just thinking the best of people. I'm mostly positively oriented towards people. And there was something about the work that you have to do to write about this stuff, to really kind of steep into this mindset. I could just feel it in my brain and I could feel it changing how I interacted with strangers in a funny way. This level of suspicion. Because you never know who's reading this stuff and you never know what people are thinking. You never know who's reading this stuff. You don't know what's in people's heads. There was a very scary moment for me when I was reading the chat logs and they were talking about like, where are we going to commit this mass shooting? And I was in this beautiful new public library in Halifax. And then they started talking in the chats about maybe we should go to the the new fancy new library and shoot people there. I was reading them, describing this library that I was in and imagining shooting people there. And it's it's giving me chills just thinking about it because it's this lovely space. There's a children's choir. I was drinking a coffee at the cafe. It was such a nice space and that somebody would want to go in there and really harm it irreparably. That mindset was really scary. And then I started to feel how it's almost self-perpetuating in a way. If you start to be really scared and closed off and paranoid And I don't know what other people are thinking. And I don't know the darkness that's in their hearts. I started to feel my own self-isolation and slipping into that. Oh, yeah, I see how this could be really like I could get sucked into this, not in a way that I'm going to commit a mass shooting. But I I don't want to ever relate to the world in that way. What is the cautionary tale with Lindsay specifically, do you think? What do we learn from this story? (sighs) I think for me, something that I... I personally learned, and I think we as a society have been learning this more over the past handful of years, is that it's dangerous to treat what happens online as if it's not real, as if it's a fantasy. I mean, she was she was participating in this world that we see a lot now, this kind of ironic fascism, um, this kind of ironic hate that I think is a mode that is prevalent in certain parts of the right wing now. That is the level of plausible deniability there, right? Because you're like, I'm just joking. Why are you taking it so seriously? I'm being shocking for shocking's sake, being provocative. And if you take it too seriously, then you're not in on the joke. And this stuff is real or it's, and it spills over into the you know non-online world. And if you're spending all your time doing hateful online racism as a joke, 
that spills into your life, that spills into your reality. It's not a separate realm. If you spend your time reblogging Columbine memes because you're a teenager and you want to be provocative, that's not the same thing as, as shooting somebody. But like, you know, just be careful where you're spending your time and be concerned about what people are doing online, even if they are sort of treating it as if it's a joke or not substantial. Because it could be a slippery slope. Because I think it is a slippery slope. On the next episode of Wicked Words. When those three civil rights workers disappeared and the FBI commenced this search throughout the state, they were dragging all these rivers in Mississippi to look for them. Before they found the bodies of the three civil rights workers, they found the bodies of like eight other black men who had been brutalized. So Mississippi was literally a graveyard for civil rights workers. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 